Is the world experiencing a political realignment? Well, joining me on the podcast today is Stephen Davies. He is the head of education at the Institute of Economic Affairs based in the United Kingdom. Stephen Davies, welcome to Solutions with David Ansar. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. So before we unpack the idea of a political realignment, I think it's important for us to understand what was the initial alignment. So where have we come from? And essentially what we're talking about is the political and economic consensus that has existed since roughly about the 1960s. Could you explain the kind of ideological underpinnings of this uh, previous alignment and uh, how it came to be? And perhaps then we can talk about where we're going. Well, political alignments are periods in which uh, politics is divided in a roughly binary way. And it's divided over one particular issue, because obviously at any given time, people disagree about a whole range of different issues. And there are all sorts of different ways of combining positions on those different issues. But what you find in a stable alignment is that there is one big issue, which is particularly salient. It matters to a lot of people, typically because it reflects a pretty deep-seated division in society. And that is the aligning issue. Uh, and there's usually a secondary aligning issue, which divides the two sides produced by the primary aligning issue, giving you four groups of voters in all, roughly. So from about the 1920s, actually, through to the roughly the present day, the dominant aligning issue has been that of how much of a role the state should have in the economy. And on the one side, you have people who think that the state should have a large and extensive role in planning or regulating the economy. And on the other side, you have those who think that the economy should be largely left to private enterprise, uh, to private activity and private ownership. Uh, now, that issue uh, became if you like, reignited in the period from roughly the late 1960s through to the late 1970s, uh, with the revival, if you like, or a reappearance of traditional free market liberalism uh, in the shape of people like Milton Friedman, uh, older, other people like Friedrich Hayek and the rest of the famous names of the Mont Pelerin Society. At the same time, there was a secondary issue which really only appeared for the first time in the 1960s, which is the question of whether or not the government should regulate people's personal and private lives and whether or not the government had a role to play in upholding conventional and traditional moral standards about matters of sexuality, drug use and the like through things like the criminal law and so on. And this produced four broad blocks of voters and the two dominant blocks, the ones that really became the poles of politics from the 1970s through until very recently, were on the one hand what you might call social democrats, people who uh, favoured state intervention in the economy but were also socially liberal they favoured liberalising the laws regarding sexuality, for example. They were opposed to uh, censorship. And on the other hand, you had people who were free market on economics, uh, but were also culturally traditionalist conservative. They uh, were opposed to rights for gay people. Uh, they didn't want the decriminalisation of homosexuality, very hostile to uh, the use of drugs and mood altering substances, that kind of thing. And that left two blocks of voters up for grabs. On the one hand, the consistent libertarians like myself, people who were both free market and on economics and also socially liberal. And on the other hand, the consistent authoritarians, the people who were both left of center on economics, 
but also very conservative on social issues. Now, what happened over the course of the three or four decades between the 1970s and the 2000s was that after a lot of political argumentation, the uh, centre-left parties, the Social Democrats, moved a long way to the market end of the spectrum on economics. You saw this with Bill Clinton in the United States, with Tony Blair uh, in the UK, with Gerhard Schroeder in Germany. So social democratic parties everywhere became much more market friendly. The other thing which happened a few years later, but was just as marked, was that centre-right parties uh, moved away from the social conservatism. So you've got a kind of convert, you see this with David Cameron and Angela Merkel, for example, both uh, on their watch putting through gay marriage, uh, for instance. And so you had a kind of convergence on that uh, libertarian quadrant, uh, a kind of combination of um, free market economics with social liberalism. And at the same time, you've got the other big development of the last 40 years, which is the growth of a kind of technocratic politics. Uh, and in particular, on the free market side, you've got the development of the idea that free markets were not a natural thing where you simply needed to withdraw the government, but that they were something that needed to be created and brought about by deliberate government action. So you had this curious paradox of a free market, but a strong state, as it was often described. Uh, and Similarly, on the centre-left, you've got the idea that social problems could be addressed by technocratic, politic, top-down policies driven and designed by experts. Now, what we've seen in the last five or six years is a reaction against that emergent consensus and the emergence of a new kind of politics, which is aligned around a new aligning issue. Okay, and we'll get into that new aligning issue in a moment. But... I think it's very interesting to look at where have the points of tension or conflict been. And I, I guess a seismic event was the 2008 financial crisis, which I think upended a lot of the confidence that many people had in this technocratic elite that was supposedly operating on this kind of established consensus that you just described. Are we still dealing with the fallout of the events of, of 2008? Yes, very much so. Um, and I think that... In, in many ways, 2008 was presented and perceived by many people as being a bolt from the blue, but in fact, it should not have been. And I don't claim any particular uh, you know, foresight on my part, but I was telling students at events uh, in 2006 that we were going to see a major financial crisis within the next few years. And this didn't require anything other than a basic knowledge of economic history, because if you look at economic history, which apparently nobody who does an economics degree does these days, uh, then you would see all of the classic warning signs of a major uh, financial crunch uh, coming up. Lots and lots of well-paid people telling you, for example, that there was an asset out there that could only go upwards in price, that had no <laughs> downside risk. Uh, you know, can I sell you Dutch tulips is the obvious kind of response <laughs> to that kind of nonsense. Uh, and also well-known economists, uh, no less than Bob Lucas, for example, uh, telling us that uh, we'd managed to solve the business cycle. Whenever people have said this in the past, it invariably means the business cycle is about to come back with a vengeance. So it should have been obvious to everybody that this was going to happen. And when it did happen, and it was quite clear as soon as it had happened, that it was the result of quite incredibly reckless behaviour by a lot of people who really should have known better, uh, it did a lot to discredit the authority of this technocratic managerial class that's been dominating our politics. And 
it has led to a series of responses, um, so-called austerity uh, in many countries, plus QE, uh, which have not resolved the underlying issues that gave rise to the financial crisis, but of course problems of their own. And in particular, what was not addressed in 2008 or its aftermath was the derangement of the world monetary system, uh, because it's pretty clear that at least since the late 1990s, since 1997, maybe even since before then, we've had a monetary system which is increasingly unstable. Uh, and the result of that is that the world is, first of all, drowning in debt, a lot of which is never going to be repaid. And I don't mean government debt so much, I mean more private debt. Uh, and all of this debt has been issued on the expectation of future growth, which is almost certainly not going to happen to the degree that is necessary for that debt to be serviced. Uh, and this has been coupled with steadily declining interest rates, uh, easier and easier access to credit, until we've reached a situation where, if you like, the whole world is hooked upon the drug of cheap money. Uh, and if you try to with even slightly withdraw that flood of cheap money, the result is like a mass seizure on the part of financial markets, asset markets and the like, and the danger of the whole economy seizing up. Uh, so governments don't do it. Now, that was already what was apparent. We had, if you like, a heart attack in the world economy in 2008. But that underlying problem, the derangement of the money system, was not addressed. Instead, they actually doubled down on it in the form of QE. Uh, and we still have that problem today. And QE is like sugar. You get that injection of stimulus and that gives you a bit of a temporary rush, but it's not very nutritious or no, sustainable. Indeed. No, indeed. And what, I mean, the whole point about QE is that what it is, personally, I think QE is a form of socialism for the rich because what it did was to massively expand base money um, but not broad money. And all that money went into the financial services sector and it was designed essentially to bail out that sector. And the sector then only used the money to, to rebuild its capital stock or gave it to the wealthy and to large firms who used it to bid up the price of assets. So we've had an incredible asset price inflation uh, in the years since 2008 which has, of course, benefited the people who own lots of assets, i.e. the rich, essentially. Uh, and it has done almost nothing to stimulate broader economic activity, which is why recovery from the financial crisis was so drawn out and uh, slow as compared to previous major recessions. It's worth saying that this is not new, because if you look at the last uh, 30 years or even 20 years back to the late 1990s, what you see is a succession of um, financial crises, each of which has been addressed by uh, creating large amounts of cheap money. And each time what has happened is that you've had growth, but it's been associated with a bubble. And when the bubble has burst, the result has been financial mayhem, again addressed by yet more cheap money. And as you say, it's like a sugar rush, but it's not at all nutritious. And it doesn't actually fundamentally address the problems in what you might call the foundational economy, the actual real world of goods and services. Now, uh, we're, we're in a very tricky situation right now because um, it, look, what has happened under COVID is that the central banks and governments have, again, for good reasons, I have to say, created huge amounts of money to try and keep the supply side of the economy going during the shutdowns. But what this has done is to expand not narrow money, but broad money by colossal amounts. So in the United States, broad money has increased by 35% in 18 months, which is the most rapid increase that has ever been in peacetime. And 
because this is broad money in the hands of ordinary people and small and medium-sized firms, it's going to feed through almost immediately, as it is indeed right now, into effective demand, uh, at the same time as the supply side has taken a massive hit from the disruption brought by the pandemic. So that's why at the moment we're seeing uh, inflation, uh, which has taken once again the experts by surprise. But I think it's actually going to get worse in the short term. Uh, and this is going to pose some very interesting challenges for central banks in the next six months. Okay, Stephen. So we're essentially dealing with two parallel processes. There's a kind of fundamental political disruption, but then also the underlying economics is very unstable, being propped up yeah. by stimulus. Um, and earlier you were saying that politics is fundamentally binary and you kind of drew that distinction uh, that has characterized the previous alignment of essentially a debate about the appropriate role of the state and uh, economics. But now that binary is looking like it's changing. In what yeah. way is that change manifesting and how are we seeing this playing out across societies around the world? Well, the, we are seeing the emergence of a new binary. Now, the, the new binary, one easy way to describe this new binary division is that it's not so much about economics, it's about identity. And in particular, the fundamental division is no longer between people who like the state intervening in the economy versus free marketeers. It's between people who like and enjoy and support cosmopolitan globalism, an open world with lots of rapid change, with lots of people moving around. And on the other side, people who find that highly threatening and who want to reassert the local, the particular, and above all, the national. And what this is leading to is the emergence of a new kind of politics, which is misdescribed, in my view, as populist. And this new kind of politics, I would rather describe as national collectivist. And what it does is to combine a strongly dirigiste economic policy with a strong hostility to globalization and globalism. So things like very strong controls on immigration, possibly protectionism, uh, a national economic or industrial strategy, an emphasis upon the nation state as opposed to supranational forms of governance, and an emphasis upon the economic role of government, of the national government, as promoting things like national champions and a national industrial policy. And this is the kind of politics of Marine Le Pen, the AFD in Germany, uh, Sweden Democrats in Sweden, uh, the brothers of Italy in Italy, or indeed uh, Salvini's party, La Lega, you can see it popping up everywhere. And these parties typically start off as being free market parties. They, if you like, advocate what you might call capitalism in one country. But the logic of politics pushes them much more in a dirigiste uh, uh, kind of state interventionist direction, because that's what their voters want. Because increasingly, they're appealing to the what I would call the dark quadrant that I mentioned earlier, the consistent authoritarian voters who are both traditional minded and authoritarian and also left of center on economics. And that's becoming increasingly their kind of core vote. So what we're seeing therefore is a decline in economics being the primary issue and the rise instead of a, an, a set of political arguments about whether or not you want to go for a global world or a more traditional, national and local world. It's worth saying though, that this is um, grows out of and reflects real world physical divisions. In particular, it reflects two divisions. One is the division that you see all over the world between large, globally connected and typically highly successful metropolitan cities. And on the other hand, 
rural areas, small towns, and decaying ex-industrial areas. Uh, and you can see this everywhere. Uh, you can see it, for example, in Turkey, where Erdogan gets his support mainly from rural Anatolia uh, and the recent migrants from that part of Turkey to Istanbul. He never does well in either the Aegean coast or in Ankara, the big metropolitan city capital. Uh, you, so that's one division. The other division that we can see is between the kind of people who live and work in those global metropolitan cities, which is essentially graduates who work in globally traded sectors like IT, finance, uh, long distance trade related activity and the like, uh, and who are typically younger and the slightly older and less educated people who live in the small towns and the rural areas. And that reflects a different position in the meritocratic labor market uh, that's come to dominate the economy of most developed countries and quite a few uh, developing ones as well. All right, so Stephen, what you have also is political fragmentation, and we're speaking on the 28th of September, and the Social Democratic Party in Germany has narrowly uh, beat out its competitors, I think it got about 25% of the vote, hardly a resounding victory uh, for the centre-left there. Um, no. But when I survey those election results, see good 11.5% or so for the Liberals, uh, the Conservatives also around 24%. So, I mean, surely that's competitive democracy in action. And what some people might bemoan as fragmentation is, is really a competition um, uh, around ideas. And surely that's a good thing. So, I mean, perhaps in some ways, this fragmentation that we're experiencing is a necessary break from the kind of orthodoxies of the past, um, which are perhaps getting a bit stale and, and rigid. I agree completely with that. Um, I think that uh, in one sense, realignments are always always a good thing because it, the reason why an old alignment ultimately passes, and this happens every 40 to 50 years, by the way, is because many of the arguments become stale. Uh, they become exhausted. The issue around which the alignment is structured either doesn't matter to people anymore, or uh, it's one where one side has decisively won the argument. And so a new kind of argument comes to appear as the, the big issue that people disagree about. And when you have a realignment like that, what is called fragmentation tends to be a side effect of that because it puts existing party alliances under enormous strain. Because you, what you find is that you were on the same side of the old alignment as this other person over there, but now you find that you're on opposite sides of the new aligning issue. So people who were allies suddenly find themselves as opponents and people who were originally rivals find themselves as friends. And in terms of the voting blocks, what you find is that formerly stable party coalitions break up. Now in a, uh, country with a proportional representation system like Germany, what this means is that the very large voter coalitions that existed in the post-war period for the CDU, CSU and the SPD, they break up and you get the growth of new um, parties as you, the Greens, the AFD, uh, and the Liberals who got 11.5% when historically, back in the days when they were always in government, they always used to barely make 5%. So they're, they're also doing well. And this is a good thing in my view, because it means that you get a wider expression of views. What will happen eventually though, is that um, these in countries like that, is that these new collections of parties will still broadly form into two uh, large 
in you know, like camps, if you will. And you can see this in countries like the Netherlands, for example, which has always had a very fragmented multi-party system. It's more tricky in countries with a first-past-the-post electoral system, like Great Britain or the United States or India uh, or Canada, because in those countries, the arguments tend to take place within parties. And you either get splits in those parties or you get a transformation of the party in which the party name remains the same and it's a lot of the same people but the ideology and even the voting base of the party is quite radically transformed and you can see this happening in britain where the conservative party is quite clearly moving in the direction of becoming a party of the working class plus uh rural people and a certain part of the upper middle class, whereas the Labour Party is increasingly becoming less and less the party of the working class and more and more the party of uh, younger people and metropolitans, essentially. Uh, something similar happening in the United States and, all, uh, and, and also in India. So that you, it, you, the same process is going on with two different kinds of country, but it takes a different form because of the way the electoral system uh, works. And let's stay with British politics, Stephen. Uh, obviously, the Brexit uh, event uh, was triggered in 2016 and only recently uh, kind of come to pass. But uh, what was Brexit all about? Because we had Douglas Carswell on the channel talking about uh, Brexit as being fundamentally a reassertion of Britain's role in the globe as a kind of a free trading nation, a, a nation of innovation and kind of rejecting some of the kind of racial and nationalist uh, elements around that. Um, what was going on with Brexit? Because I'm still trying to wrap my head around it. Uh, I, I, well, I have actually written a book about this. So if I could put a little plug in for that. I, I've got an actual book called The Economics and Politics of Brexit, which clarifies all these kind of issues. Um, Brexit was, the first thing to realize is that Brexit was not the cause of realignment in Britain. It was caused by realignment because what you saw in the 10 or 12 years leading up to Brexit was the steady growth of a kind of national collectivist politics, as I've called it, uh, in the shape of UKIP. Uh, and this was putting increasing pressure on the Conservatives. And so David Cameron's decision to promise and then call a referendum uh, was not uh, as some people think of it, a kind of you know foolish or frivolous action. It was a hard-headed political call on his part, made by the need, as he saw it, to head off the mortal threat that UKIP posed to the Conservative Party's historic position as the only party, serious party, on the right of British politics. Now, he thought that he would win the election, but the, the referendum, that is, but of course, in the event, for various reasons, he didn't. Now, what... Uh, happened in that vote is the leave vote was made up of different parts, if you will. One part was the part that Douglas Carswell speaks for, which he described quite well. The people who wanted essentially to get out of the bureaucratic and technocratic structures of the EU and to reassert Britain's open, uh, globalist, uh, if you like, ocean-oriented uh, kind of uh, position in the world, which meant reviving uh, links with you know the parts of the world that had formerly been part of the British Empire, such as large parts of Africa, including South Africa, of course, also uh, India, the Indian subcontinent, Malaysia, the Strait, what used to be called the Strait Settlements, places like that, the West Indies, uh, not at all introverted or nationalistic. And so far it is asserting a version of national identity, I don't think actually asserting a kind of ethnic notion of Britishness at all, but rather one that 
emphasizes a supposed common heritage. Now, you can have lots of arguments about how accurate that is historically, given the nature of the British Empire, but leave that aside for a moment. That's what those kind of people wanted. But they were only a very small part of the coalition of voters that brought about Brexit. The larger part by far uh, was made up of people, many of whom had previously voted for the Labour Party and had gradually fallen away from Labour over the previous 20 years. And these are people who, uh, if you like, rather adhere to a view of little Englandism uh, or of British nationalism, uh, one which emphasised uh, a kind of working class traditional rooted identity, which they saw as being threatened by things that they had come to associate, rightly or wrongly, with the European Union, notably widespread and very high levels of immigration, um, both from other parts of the world, but more importantly, from Eastern Europe, uh, from Poland and the other new accession states uh, in the last to, and under, under Tony Blair and subsequently. And so people in that, of that kind did not want the kind of globally open Britain that Douglas Carswell wanted. What they wanted was something more like the post-war settlement, if you like. They wanted to go back to the 1940s or 1950s, if you want to put it that way. Uh, they wanted a kind of Britain which, while still open to the world, I don't think anybody in Britain is really much in favour of protectionism, for example, uh, was much more not exactly inward looking, but much more locally minded uh, and built around a much more traditional view of, well, maybe British, but actually increasingly English national identity. And it's important to distinguish those two things. So both of those groups of voters, the second one being much the larger, voted leave, but for very different reasons and with a very different vision of what was to come after Brexit. And it became very clear, of course, once the vote had happened, that all these people, you know, who had voted for Brexit had no clear idea or no single idea about what kind of exit deal they wanted, if any. And that was one reason why the subsequent 18 months to two years were so uh, torturous and um, uh, interesting or fascinating if you were, you know, a, a connoisseur of political spectacle. So, Stephen, as somebody who self-identifies as being socially liberal and also uh, an advocate of free markets, and something that I have always wrestled with is, well, you know, free markets, innovation, and immigration as well brings positive disruption and change, um, and that leads to increases in standards of living and wealth over time. But that process of disruption does create winners and losers, and it seems that that poses a political challenge and even a threat sometimes to the stability of societies. Um, so how do we reconcile that? So for example, some of those people who, who would have voted leave uh, for those uh, kind of nativist reasons, um, you know, maybe they have experienced the shutting down of a local factory in their small town or, yeah. or uh, their um, children are working in menial temporary service jobs. And maybe if you zoom out, you can say, okay, oh, but GDP has gone up over the last few decades, so what's there to worry about? But that seems to be a bit of a, a callous response to, to people who may not have necessarily benefited from the dividends of the kind of liberalized system. So how would you approach that problem? Well, I, could, I can't agree more with what, what you just said there. Um, I think economists are much too glib and facile generally in saying that, oh, Rising tides lifting all boats, and uh, it doesn't. Okay, there are some frictional losses, but basically everything is fine because everyone's better off. I think there are 
two major problems with that. One of them is that those transitional costs are often very, very severe and long lasting. And ultimately, maybe the people who bear them don't gain as much from the increased wealth and activity that, that happens as a result of the, the creative destruction. So if you're living in South Yorkshire, which was a part of the world totally dominated by one industry, mining, uh, those mines are shut down for good reasons. But what have you got? You've got a large population who's not only is it unable to um, easily or readily retrain for any other kind of work, uh, but also the whole cultural heart has been ripped out of that part of the country. It's very, very difficult to accelerate that transition, that move or switch to another kind of way of living or another kind of local economy, which is what you need to see happening. Um, the second thing is that a lot of the costs of transition are not purely economic. Many people may well be better off economically, but an important insight is that many people experience change, even change that an economist might say is change for the better, as loss because they've lost the familiar. They've lost what they are used to, what they've grown up with in many cases, what they feel comfortable with, and they're confronted with something novel uh, and from their perspective, uncomfortable or disorientating. So even if they're better off, they have more stuff, they may not be as much at ease, if you will, psychologically. And I think economists tend to overlook these sort of non-material goods and uh, benefits and costs. Now, what is the way of dealing with this? Well, I think that the great temptation, there are two temptations to avoid here for liberals, if you will, people like both yourself and myself. One is to say, oh, it'll all come out in the wash, just let's leave it to market forces. I think that that is a mistake, um, particularly when you're talking about an economy which is a market economy which is run in the way that the one we have now has been run for increasingly for about 20 30 years which is on the basis of technocratic managerialism and highly intensified production over optimization i would say something that's been shown up by the pandemic uh, so you, you you simply can't rely on that that kind of process to work in a way that does significantly or rapidly address those two kinds of problem. The other thing is to rely upon um, government programs and action of some kind or other to say that what you need is some sort of major government led retraining program because such a program is going to be subject to all of the problems that large scale government programs always have lack of knowledge lack of nimbleness lack of flexibility it'll be well meaning it's done with the best of intentions but it's i think in many cases going to make problems worse rather than better by crowding out private actions that could make things better i think the solution um is to look for the kind of things that Eleanor Ostrom uh, looked at in her work, which is local voluntarist uh, civil society actions and measures, which are non-government, but also non-market in many ways. Uh, think the creation of local institutions, uh, local community activity and uh, the like, which resolves or addresses the kind of problems and issues that we're talking about. The adjustment to new circumstances, uh, the kind of maintenance of or sustaining of continuity in a world that seems to be changing very rapidly, and also the creation of a functioning and effective local economy that can provide a decent way of living and a dignified way of living, more importantly, perhaps, for people in areas that have lost their original primary economic uh, function. Now, that is uh, 
what role does politics have to play in that? Well, I think it's partly is simply creating the right environment. I think government should really look to create the institutional, a liberal government that is, should look to create the institutional framework for this kind of social bottom-up uh, response, uh, but also make it easier through things like fiscal and tax policy that it has, uh, maybe the welfare policy that it has, by constructing these in ways that don't get in the way of uh, this kind of uh, spontaneous social response. And we have begun to see this, I think, in a number of places, such as Preston in the UK, Cleveland in the United States, also perhaps um, interestingly more at local government level, therefore, than at national government level. But I think we are beginning to see the thinking uh, of the right kind, even at the national level. The problem is, it, we should have had that kind of thinking and that response back in the 1980s and early 90s, and we didn't. And so uh, we've had a kind of lost generation, if you will, in many parts of the world, and it's produced the kind of politics that we're now seeing. Yeah, in many ways, that's the theme consistently in this podcast is bottom-up solutions to some of the world's most intractable problems. And the opposite of that is top-down. And yeah. in many respects, I think the political rebellions that we're starting to see across Europe and and elsewhere are a symptom of a kind of a reaction against this idea that, well, if you can just outsource politics to this bureaucratic elite, and then people who uh, basically don't have the means uh, to uplift themselves, they must just be wards of the state and mm -hmm. must just subsist off of welfare and, and, and uh, you know, vote loyally for, uh, for their technocratic yeah. masters at, at each election. Yeah. But I think that that is a denial of, and a misunderstanding of how democracy actually works and, and how uh, politics is expressed at the ballot box. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's, I mean, basically, there's a very old, old word to describe people in that kind of relationship to their social superiors, and that's serfs. Uh, the, the idea is that you are, if, if you think about that approach to politics, what it does is to deny agency and therefore dignity and self-respect to ordinary people. You're basically seen as idiots who don't know what's good for you, whereas the experts apparently do, uh, and who therefore have to be either told what to do, or if that's not possible, nudged uh, into doing the right thing, uh, using the techniques that Thaler and Sunstein sort of outline in their book with that name. And I think that's a profoundly illiberal, uh, and morally repulsive vision of politics. Uh, and it's not surprising, this caused a huge backlash. Now, the problem is that the form the backlash has taken is sometimes a form of kind of highly destructive populism in which you have people who have no positive, positive policy agenda uh, other than hostility to the elite. And then once they get into power, of course, it becomes very apparent they have no idea what to do and they become part of the establishment themselves. Okay, uh, five star, the five star movement in Italy. Yeah, precisely. Five star in Italy is a classic example of that. And there are, there are many other examples of it. Um, or on the other hand, you have uh, demands for highly, highly destructive politics, what you might call the moon on a stick kind of politics, uh, of which I think things like the economic freedom fighters in South Africa are, are an example. Or you get the idea that, yes, you do need a reassertion of actual proper democratic politics, but this can only take place at the national level. Now, that's a very seductive route because one of the things that people are reacting against is the tendency that you mentioned to outsource a lot of political debate and argument to experts who are actually very often at the supranational level. So what democratic voters are, electorates are told constantly in country after country is, oh, you can't do X because of some international agreement that 
the, the country they're citizens of has entered into. This was particularly noticeable in the EU, but you can see it all over the world. And so an enormous amount of areas of what would have been uh, topics for political argument, debate, contestation, are now handed over to um, bureaucratic or technocratic elites who are not even national. They are associated with and affiliated with international bodies like the IMF, the World Bank, uh, the WTO, uh, all the various alphabet soup of agencies that the United Nations has, or organizations like the EU. And that is all, it's not surprising, confronted with that, that the response is to say, well, what we need to do is to reassert the political role and function of national governments. Now, the danger with that, of course, is that what it leads to is national competition and beggar my neighbor economic policies. And the real ultimate danger, of course, is it leads to war because of the breakdown of international order. And this is what happened, of course, in the central decades of the 20th century with the results that we all know about. So I think that the actual appropriate solution is to say that what you want to do is to adopt, as you describe it, the bottom-up approach to politics, to emphasize rather the role of civil society and principles of subsidiarity, the old Roman Catholic principle that decisions should always be made at the lowest possible level. Uh, and also to emphasize the value of um, non-experts uh, of local knowledge, tacit knowledge, uh, informal knowledge, as opposed to the uh, credentialed knowledge uh, of the expert class, the people with degrees from Harvard and Cambridge and uh, Whitwater's Rand, if you want to think about it, in the South African context and places like that. Uh, and, you know, also, finally, to constantly look for a system where the people who make decisions uh, actually have, in Nassim Nicholas Taleb's expression, skin in the game. In other words, they're going to bear a loss if they get it wrong. One of the big problems with this technocratic politics is the people who make decisions, they, they only have, they have no exposure to downside risk. If they make a major screw up, they get something wrong, they do not bear a personal cost. Uh, whereas they get lots of kudos and praise if they get it right. And that's not an environment that's conducive to good or effective decision-making. All right, Stephen, so what about this uh, politically contentious idea of immigration and open borders? Because we had Alex Narasta on the podcast saying yeah. that this creates uh, huge improvements in welfare, employment opportunities, and it creates much more dynamic labor markets. But then, you know, I put it to him that there are also, uh, you know, certain second-order effects like uh, cultural fit issues and and other things and this also this political reaction against uh, immigration has been really galvanizing particularly on the the so-called populist right um so i mean how do we advance uh, the benefits of immigration but also taking into account that you know countries should also be able to determine who comes in and uh you know who participates and you know where do we where do we strike that balance well, um, actually, I agree completely with Alex, actually. Uh, like him, I'm a strong proponent of actually a world of open borders uh, and failing that as few restrictions on movements as we can have. I would actually challenge your argument that countries have the right to decide who goes in and who goes out, because what does countries mean in this context? Now, um, arguably, what it means is the indigenous population or the voters of that country. Uh, in reality, it means therefore the policy making and political class of that country. Now, as a matter of historical fact, that was not normally the case until 
um, but really quite recently, historically. The normal pattern historically was that you were free to move from one kingdom to another, one state to another, but people, unless they were in the elite, could not move around freely within countries. So passports originally were not documents that you needed to get entry to another state. They were a document that allowed you, once you were in the other state, to move around freely and show that you weren't a peasant who should be staying on their lord's estate and not moving off it without their permission. Uh, now, what happened in the 19th century was that liberals got rid of all those controls on internal movement, uh, but they didn't impose new controls at borders. So by the end of the 19th century, we were reasonably close to a world of open borders, and we actually had massive population movement uh, on a truly remarkable scale. Uh, you know, the, the scale of migration to places like uh, South Africa, the New World, Argentina, uh, the United States, Canada, Australia was quite remarkable. And also huge migrations, which we don't know about much, within places like East and South Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa more generally, very widespread movements. Now, um, that all came to an end with the Great War. And the regime we're used to, where one of the features of a sovereign state is that they control who goes across their borders. Um, that only really appears in the 1920s, uh, in the aftermath of the Great War, uh, it, it, or during the Great War and its immediate aftermath. Now, the thing to realize is this, and this is the argument made by another friend of mine, Chandran Kukathas, in his recent book, Immigration Freedom, which I strongly recommend. First of all, immigrants are not a natural kind of person. How do you know what an immigrant is? Is somebody who comes to Johannesburg for a week and then flies off an immigrant? Is somebody who comes to Cape Town for six months or a year and then goes away an immigrant? And you'll find if you have a group of people that there's a whole number of different points at which some people will say that the person in question, the hypothetical person, is an immigrant. In other words, the category of immigrant is always a kind of arbitrary political decision. Now, the second thing is that once you've made that decision, controlling who goes across your borders must involve controlling the behavior of the people within the borders. In other words, it isn't just a case of the people who live within borders imposing controls on movement into their uh, political community only on uh, the people who want to come in, or for that matter, leave. It's also a matter of controlling the people who live within those borders, uh, because I might want, for example, to hire somebody or have somebody stay with me who comes from another part of the world. I now can't do this freely because I'm controlled by uh, the rules or constrained by the rules governing movement in or across the borders. And logically, and philosophically, there's no difference between controlling movement across a geopolitical border and controlling movement within it. If you want to stop migration, let's say from Zimbabwe into South Africa, why should you not also stop migration from uh, KwaZulu-Natal into Western Cape, for example? Uh, there's no difference between the two things. They're both movements of people that bring about demographic and cultural change. And the idea that the only thing that causes demographic and cultural change is movement across geopolitical borders is clearly just not true unless you're talking about really, really small and homogeneous countries. In the, in the, in the United States, for example, uh, one of the largest population movements in American history is the mass migration of both white and black people from the South into the North 
in the years between the 1920s and the 1960s, which totally transforms the demography and culture of northern states, and particularly northern large cities like Detroit, Chicago, uh, Philadelphia and the like. Uh, now, that's entirely movement within a single political entity. Similarly, the movement China is seeing from Shenzhen and Shanxi and northwest China down to the coastal provinces, which is like move, mass migration from Eastern Europe to Western Europe in terms of the geographical distances we're talking about. That again is, is totally movement within a state. So the question really is not immigration. The question is, how do you deal with, what view do you take of very rapid and large scale cultural and demographic change brought about by people moving about? The fact that they're moving across geopolitical borders, I think, um, is neither here nor there. Uh, that's that's a kind of irrelevant distraction. The question is, it, within a political community, how do you deal with the cultural shifts brought about by movement of people, regardless of whether it's movement within a country or across the geopolitical borders? Now, that's not an easy question to answer because while I agree with Alex and most economists for that matter, that there are huge economic benefits to allowing freer movement of labor around the planet, from a purely economist point of view, it moves a major factor of production, labor, from places where it's less productive to places where it's more productive. And so it increases total wealth and makes everyone better off ultimately. Um, there's also the whole question of what you alluded to, the uh, cultural, social effects, the impact upon people's sense of the familiar and stable, which we were talking about earlier. And so how do you manage that and cope with that? Well, one of the revealing facts is that people who live in areas that have experienced large-scale migration are relaxed about it. The people who are not relaxed about it are the people who live near to those areas, but haven't yet had it themselves. In other words, these are people who have not yet experienced the change and feel anxious about it, but typically once it's happened, they feel more, uh, they feel much more relaxed about it. And I think there are various ways you can try to alleviate the quite obvious feelings of anxiety that people have. Now, it is worth saying, and this is an important qualification to what I've just said, that voluntary migration is much more beneficial than involuntary. Um, involuntary migration uh, does not have the really strong positive economic effects of voluntary migration for various reasons. And it can also bring rather unwelcome social results as well. So paradoxically, you might say it's voluntary migrants, economic migrants that you need to be more relaxed about. And it's refugees that you need to be a bit more cautious about because large scale involuntary migration, a kind of Volker Wanderung as the Germans called it, um, is actually can often be quite quite damaging in its effects. The obvious solution there is not to be punitive to refugees, um, or fellow human beings after all, it's rather to try and address the kind of things which are leading to large-scale involuntary movements of people around the world, as opposed to voluntary migration. Right, Stephen. Well, something I'd obviously like to talk about is the COVID-19 crisis. Mm. And uh, the world has obviously been convulsed by this, uh, and it's had huge uh, economic effects as well as, as social ones. What, what does this tell us about the times in which we live uh, and the broader discussion that we've been having today around political realignment? Do you think that uh, this is going to be one of these causal factors uh, that propels us in a new direction or is it the manifestation, the expression of where we are currently and how we're changing? What is your it's view? Both. It's both really. Um, in one sense, uh, the uh, 
the spread of the pandemic and the scale of the pandemic is a reflection of certain features of the world which i briefly alluded to uh, earlier notably the degree to which we live in a globally interconnected and increasingly complex but above all in many ways over optimized world a world in which is run on principles of just-in-time delivery and manufacture uh, which therefore has very very little margin for error uh, almost no redundancy or resilience, in other words. Now, I think the COVID uh, pandemic has revealed the weaknesses of that kind of um, model or that kind of system. Um, and something like it was actually made more likely by that model. If you look at the history of pandemics, um, pandemics, genuine pandemics are actually quite rare in the pre-modern world. When they happen, they tend to be devastating, like the Black Death or the Plague of Justinian, but, they, they're, but they're very infrequent. They happen about every 500 years or so. Since 1800, we've had, no, we've had about 20 pandemics. Um, so they're actually much commoner now than they used to be. And the reason is because people move around a lot more. Uh, and so and they also move much more quickly. And this makes the uh, transmission of epidemic diseases much, much easier. So the biologists have been warning for oh, almost 20 years now uh, that a, a major pandemic on the scale of the Spanish flu pandemic or worse was getting more and more likely. And I think we, had, we dodged a couple of bullets, if you like, in the last couple of decades um, with swine flu, which turned out to be a pandemic that was very, very mild and so not very threatening. Ebola, which never fortunately was contained within Africa, MERS and SARS, which were contained in other parts of the world. But now, finally, the weaknesses of the system have been revealed, I think. Now, on the other hand, I think what this pandemic has done is what pandemics usually do, which is to not actually cause change, but to accelerate changes that were already underway or to highlight or cast a very bright light upon deficiencies or structural weaknesses that were already there. So one of them, as I've already mentioned, is, is the, I think, over-optimization of the world economy, the lack of redundancy, the excessive specialization, uh, the over-complexity of a lot of production systems with extremely long supply chains, very complex supply chains. And I think we're going to see a major, major pullback from that in the next 10 years. Uh, the real disruption and disorder that we're seeing in supply chains globally at the moment, which is probably going to last till the middle of next year, if not slightly longer, um, that is going to lead a lot of companies and other actors to lead that they need to reassess it. And I think that what the pandemic has also done and what it's going to do is to accelerate the turn away from uh, technocratic politics, uh, because uh, the kind of measures that were quite rightly, in my view, taken to deal with the pandemic by governments all around the world have provoked a lot of mistrust of experts, unfortunately. And this is in many ways a bad thing, but it reflects the degree to which experts' claims to knowledge and control about the world have been found wanting. Uh, because, quite honestly, a pandemic is a very complex phenomenon in the technical sense, uh, and therefore almost impossible, theoretically impossible, to predict or to control or to manage. And so the kind of claims of expertise, the ability, the claims on the part of experts that you can control and direct uh, natural processes or spontaneous processes has been shown to be false. Uh, so 
although you need experts, I think that the we're going to see a continuing intensification of the reaction against their claims to a special kind of authority and an emphasis rather upon the need to respond to challenges like this in a decentralized and polycentric way. Yeah, I certainly think distributed knowledge is underrated. And uh, I think yeah. uh, there is a lot of that kind of tacit knowledge that exists at the lower level that can be channeled. But how do we do that? Um, you know, I think the theme of this podcast is called Solutions. And many people listening or watching to this episode will be thinking, well, okay, this is all uh, the, the kind of broader macro trends, but what am I supposed to to do to affect these kinds of changes in my life or in my community? Uh, how, would you, how would you recommend going about doing that? I, I would just say, go and see what you need to do in your own locality. Uh, quite honestly, um, look look around the locality, your neighbourhood, even perhaps your apartment block. Think about what are what do you want to do to change where you are to make it better for you uh, and for your neighbours, uh, and just do it. Uh, that's always the way to do it. Forget about the big picture in a way. Um, I am always a bit annoyed by people who tell me that they want to change the world because uh, that's such a hubristic and impossible ambition. Nobody can change the world. Uh, and the attempt to change the world, the whole world, is usually going to end up in tears. But what you can do is change the immediate neighbourhood you live in. Um, you can and change yourself, of course, in various ways. And you should try and do that. Just literally think about the very, very local small area around yourself, what you want to do to make it a better place and do it. And make contacts with the people around you and build up forms of communication, networks, you know, associations with them, which enable you to act collectively to do things that you can't do on your own. And one of the things to do is to develop forms of communication and means of communication that tie people together. Now, I know social media gets a lot of stick at the moment, in many cases often justified, but what it also does is provide enormous opportunities for, uh, through things like WhatsApp groups, for example, to name one particular brand, uh, or other things, Facebook groups, same company, of course, uh, to link people together at a very small and local level. Uh, and that's the way to do it. So, you know, ignore in many ways the kind of large-scale macro picture, just focus on the micro. Uh, and uh, that, that's the way to do it. So what you will find is that quite spontaneously, you will find yourself then in your locality, making associations with other people in other areas. And, and that's how the kind of networks that Ostrom describes uh, spring up and arise. Yeah, and I think it's about narrowing that locus of control into what you can actually yeah, control immediately um, and yeah, exactly. tending your own garden, as, as it were. Yes, exactly. Uh, and, you know, that's, that advice is as you know, applicable now as it was when Voltaire wrote it. And uh, just a, as a concluding remark from you, Stephen, um, I mean, you're obviously with the Institute of Economic Affairs, which had a profound impact on public mm. policy uh, in Britain, influencing the, the Thatcher government and kind of the liberalization of, of the UK. Uh, what would be your message to think tanks like the one that I work for about how to advance that battle of ideas and how to win the, the war of influence? Well, my, my advice is um, don't, don't worry too much about the current media. Uh, it, you, you need to have a Twitter presence, you need to basically appear in the media, but you should not make that your main focus. What you should focus upon mainly is winning the long-term intellectual argument, which is what the IEA historically under Harrison Seldon did. 
you need to think very long term in a think tank. You need to think about a 10 year, 20 year horizon. So you need to develop the arguments, uh, make those arguments constantly, hopefully win the arguments so that the whole intellectual landscape is shifted. It's very easy to get distracted by the noise and fury of the media when you're in the world of 24 hour broadcasting, social media, Twitter uh, and the like. But that, that's a very dangerous distraction because uh, if you do that, it's very easy to mistake uh, you know, a thousand tweets and retweets for actually getting something done or changing people's minds in a significant way. Uh, you're not actually doing that if you if you focus too much on that. So my strong advice is to actually stick to the apparently tedious but ultimately much more rewarding path of doing the hard heavy lifting of intellectual analysis, trying to persuade people, trying to get ideas out there uh, and make sure that those ideas are known, if you will, and taken seriously by what Friedrich Hayek called the second-hand dealers in ideas, the people who pass the ideas on and the way, you know, the form of analysis that they employ uh, on into the public conversation. Um, if you try to focus too much on the immediate top level of the conversation, you're putting the cart before the horse, it seems to me. Uh, you need to get the ideas out there first. Yeah, and as somebody who runs a YouTube channel and has a keen eye always on the number of subscribers and views that I'm getting. I think that that's a very well-placed advice uh, to focus on the ideas and, and uh, let the rest work itself out. Yeah, the, there is a great danger in focusing too much on the sort of like what's currently at the top of the 24-hour news cycle and uh, short-term controversies. Uh, a key kind of element of judgment, I suppose, if you're running something like a YouTube channel or a podcast like this one, is to think about what are the big, long-lasting questions that we're going to be talking about, not just next week, which is a long time for the current media, but next year and in five or six years' time, what are the really big issues that are going to run and run and run, and to keep on focusing on them and coming back to them. Well, Stephen Davies, I'll certainly take that advice, and that's the principles with which I started the podcast, but uh, you've reminded me to keep on that trajectory. So just wanted to thank you very much for joining me on Solutions with David Ansara. This was an extremely interesting conversation and uh, hope to have you back on the show one of these days. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure being with you. If you enjoyed this discussion, please do give this video a like and subscribe to the channel if you're watching on YouTube. And if you're listening on your preferred podcast platform, please do leave a five-star review there. It really helps the show to grow. My name is David Ansara. Until next Sunday, take care.